Welcome everyone to Season 2, Episode 62 of the Premier Pod. I'm your host, Yash Pika, joined by my co-host, Tyler Chan. In this episode, we're going to discuss the Tottenham-Manchester City game, Leicester City versus Chelsea, Liverpool's big win over Southampton, and Arsenal and Manchester United settling for nil-nil draws in the Premier League. So, to get things started, we had the big matchup of the weekend, Tottenham, Jose Mourinho's Tottenham, getting a big win over Pep Guardiola, 2-0 win at home a win that surprised pretty much everyone i think every if you asked anyone going into this game even us we thought city were going to probably roll past tottenham and the exact opposite happened tottenham took uh took their chances uh steven bergwin i think yeah yeah bergwin got his debut goal an absolute stunning goal what a goal to score on his debut and then sun scoring and again peps manchester peps manchester city caught out defensively uh however I don't think this was a Jose Mourinho masterclass. I personally believe that Manchester City just did not take their chances when it came to them. Is that how you feel, Tyler, too? Yeah, I feel that because especially in the first half, it looked like it was all going City's way, especially with that VAR penalty kick that was just, it felt like five minutes later. They were like, oh, wait. Yeah, that was so random. So what happened during the game is that a foul occurred in the Tottenham box and it should have been a penalty but like play went on and then literally five minutes later like the ref came back and was like you know what no it's a penalty VAR <laughs> deemed it penalty and then they gave Gunawan the penalty which is so and weird I was like what the heck and Jose Mourinho when you saw on the sideline just start laughing he's like no <laughs> no way he's like everything's just going against Tottenham but you know sure enough Gunawan got his not really well-placed penalty saved by Hugo Lloris. And then mm-hmm. right after that, Sterling went in for the for a follow-up, and then Hugo Lloris fouled him. In my opinion, he mm-hmm. fouled him in the box, and they didn't Ooh, okay. get a penalty for that because they were like, you know what, we already gave you a VAR penalty. We're not going to give you two. So, mm-hmm. so I think that's what happened there. But they didn't really take their chances in the first half. And Sterling, I feel like, also got away with a potential red card stamp on Deli yeah. Alley's ankle. It mm-hmm. literally went 90 degrees that ankle and and yeah, I mean he got he got yellow carded correct on that mm-hmm. challenge yeah and I and I personally I, I feel the opposite on that challenge he had on Hugo Lloris I felt like that was a dive on Sterling's effort um I personally feel like that should have been another yellow for him and he should have been sent off and City should have been down to 10 men because as you saw um, with Hugo Lloris's action reaction everyone else every other Tottenham player I know we see it all the time but usually you are not complaining that badly or complaining that hard if, unless you feel like that player dived. And Sterling, unfortunately, has had the track record of, you know, diving. And I personally feel like that was another instance of him diving. And personally, VAR should have checked that out and should have been a, I don't know, a red card offense for Sterling. But, you know, City ultimately got a player sent off in Zinchenko doing one of those um, Pep Guardiola tactical fouls. I put that in quotation, tactical fouls. <laughs> And basically tackled some somebody that uh, he made a challenge that he didn't really need to make because I think City had enough cover, mm-hmm. but made the challenge, got sent off. And from there, Tottenham took their chances and ended up winning the game. So, again, City just kind of get caught out defensively. And if they don't take their chances, you know, this could be, you know, I mean, we've seen it this season. This is a problem they have defensively. They're just not as strong this season uh, for whatever reason. I mean, Emmerich Laporte was also not risked in this game as well, which I was a little confused about because this is a top six battle. And this is a big decider in the placement of not only from two to six, but also if Manchester City does want to keep pressure on Liverpool, they have to get a result. And also just keeping momentum in going into the upcoming Champions League games, just getting wins that also will help the team in getting through the first round of knockouts. And for Pep Guardiola to not risk Emelik Report, I think that also is a sign that he, Champions League. Yeah, he's just like all in on Champions League. But also at the same time, he might have just given up a little bit on the Premier League. Mm-hmm. But I mean, then Which again, is- when you look at the stats, they had 19 shots as opposed to the Tottenham three. I, it, Aguero missed some good chances too. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone, like everyone on that team was missing some pretty decent chances and I kind of go back to the Carabao Cup semi-final against Manchester United there were so many chances where City should have brought back the score to 1-1 or ended up you know 
get scoring more than one goal and scoring two goals, but it just seems like a lot of times they're just kind of unconfident in front of goal. If you take out Sergio Aguero, Kevin De Bruyne, I think with Raheem Sterling being so out of form, I think that really does hurt Manchester City because when Sterling's in form, you know, he makes those run, he makes the run behind defenders. He can take on players. He's so quick and nimble on the ball. And then, you know, when he's in form, he's scoring loads of goals. But when he's out of form, you know, you just kind of see the Sterling that you saw with Liverpool, his last season with Liverpool, where he's kind of unconfident in front of goal. He's kind of running around people. But, you know, when it seems like it's a chance for him to shoot, he's not shooting. He's instead trying to pass. I mean, there was one instance where I think, uh, was it Hugo Lloris made a terrible back pass or something like that, or a terrible pass from the goalkeeping position, and uh, City win the ball back, and Sterling has a chance to play in, I believe, Gundogan, but he overhits the pass, and Gundogan basically has to outstretch his foot, and that ends up he ends up skying the ball over. So, mm-hmm. uh, out of form, Sterling really is hurting Manchester City offensively. I think right now, I feel that too, and also I think it's slightly compounded in the fact that. Pep Guardiola this season has been the manager to make the most changes to his starting 11 so far in the Premier League on a week-to-week basis. did not know that. Yeah, and that's why I also feel like when a team doesn't have that consistency and that knowingness where it's like, all right, a player in his mind is thinking, all right, I'm going to play this upcoming this upcoming Saturday or this upcoming Sunday. I need to be mentally prepared for it so I can just go in, you know, do my mm-hmm. best. And I know who else is going to be playing too. But, like, I feel like every time they go into the weekend, no one knows who's going to be starting. Because, sure enough, you can see Riyad Mahrez start three games in a row, score a goal in each of those games. And in the fourth game, he gets benched. It's like, what happened? And it's not helping that Sané is training again. So that also throws in another wrinkle. And it's mm-hmm. almost, it's almost too... They are. They have too many good players that they just don't know how to rotate all of them. You know, it's not like Liverpool where you have your core starting eleven and you have players on the bench who can occasionally go in the starting eleven, but you're not going to replace them with the starters they have. City mm-hmm. basically have a whole another starting eleven on their bench, and that's why they have the luxury of also rotating. But at the same time, that's kind of the downfall right now because, like as you've just been saying. There's just not that much consistency and just lack of rhythm because of that. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting case for City, but going on to Leicester City in the Chelsea matchup, a actually the scoreline you predicted this, Tyler, you got you called a two-two scoreline in the last episode, so good hey. kudos to that. But Chelsea getting two goals from an unlikely source in Rudiger, but the bigger news in Chelsea's camp was Kepa Arisa Balaga was benched in this game for Willy Caballero. And reportedly, some of the news I've been seeing on just on the internet on Twitter is that Lampard is keen on selling Kepa this coming summer. Be a huge, huge, huge transfer if this happens because obviously they brought in Kepa. I think he was the world's most expensive keeper when they mm-hmm. brought him in. Yeah, he, he out. He, yeah, he still is because he he's more expensive than uh, Alisson. Yep, which is crazy. And he was brought in to replace Thibaut Courtois. At certain instances, you know, he looks like a quality keeper, but he has, I've personally seen whenever I watch Chelsea, he is very prone to making mistakes out of the back. He's not very comfortable playing the ball out of his feet. And when it comes to shot stopping, he can be kind of erratic. Um, We've seen that with the Champions League where he kind of lets in some goals where you kind of shake your head and scratch your head. And obviously he had that huge bust up with Maurizio Sarri where he basically straight up disrespected him and did not come out of the field. So... Uh, you know, this is probably if Lampard did sell him, this is probably his first big move as Chelsea manager, kind of laying down his foot, you know, on the ground and saying that he's not going to be, he's not going to put up with this. Do you personally feel like selling Kepa is the right decision for them to make uh, this coming summer? I only think that if they have a replacement ready to go, because Kepa, if you were to sell him now, you definitely would make a loss on him because the amount they paid for him was definitely slightly panicked by because it was a transfer deadline day move. And that's why he also got that huge price tag. But at the same time, while at Chelsea, you kind of watch him and you think his ability to improve doesn't seem that like much more than what he is now. It's like, oh, he has potential, but it's like, it's not, you don't see him becoming a potential world-class superstar goalkeeper. You just, you don't really see something where it's like, oh, he has the potential like Ederson 
did when he can just like bomb a punt all yeah. the way across the field. Or and he I'll just throw this: those... he's mm-hmm. he's twenty five. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, like Ali's son, he didn't really boom until after twenty five. But I mean, then again, when you watch like Keppa, he's not really making those kind of world class saves that you would see from like a Ter Stegen or like a Neuer was also when they were like getting up the ranks at that same age. So, you know, Keppa, he's like a good keeper, but he's not a keeper that's worth that insane price. And I don't know what Chelsea would really do in terms of getting a new keeper. Cause like, unless they get a keeper that's better than him currently, I don't still know anyone on the market right exactly. now. Exactly. That's also the thing too. There's not really that many other keepers right now on the market. That's, would be worth Young. really selling Kepa for to get that'd be that significant of a change. So I don't know. Or maybe it's like a mind game kind of thing where too, where it's like, you know what? You're not safe, Kepa, just because you're the most expensive keeper. We can sell you. And then maybe that'll force what him to that... turn up. <laughs> no, exactly. But what does that do to his mental? I feel like this messes up with him mentally. It's going to take him a couple games to get back um, in the right mindset because he benched him. And then he benched him for Willy Caballero, who didn't have that good of a game against Leicester. And now Willy Caballero shows his experience, but now he's going to be a little iffy if you start playing him. And then, you know, I I feel like it was a big risk for Lampard to do this, and it really didn't pay off in this Leicester game. We're going to have to see how he manages this. But, you know, with Kepa, do you feel like it also could be, I don't know any of, you know, I don't know too much about you know if he is a locker room problem because obviously if you have a big bust up like that with your manager last year with Maurizio Sarri I don't know if he's having the same type of bust up with Frank Lampard or if he's hard to coach I don't know too much about that but it's just very interesting because he's 25 David De Gea is 29 obviously when De Gea came into the league he was a young teenager and he was growing in the Premier League and developing his craft so that's why his mistakes came and we just mentioned with Kepa, he's a little bit older and he's still making some of these mistakes, but he's not really developing a, either. In my yeah, opinion. no, exactly. He, he, he's so prone to those mistakes, but this is a big move for Lampard. If this actually does happen. And I kind of wanted to bring this up with the whole idea of Lampard too, because I personally feel I'm not bringing, I'm not coming at this as sort of a Manchester United fan perspective, but as an overall person that watches the Premier League, I personally feel like Lampard, kind of gets away from any of the stick that he maybe should be receiving at times i feel like you know obviously they had the transfer ban but i i feel like a lot of people are giving him the free pass or kind of turning their turning their shoulder with him i know obviously he's english so that may give him a little bit of bias there but you know he's had some bad losses this season i i can think of you know southampton and a sub, couple other teams but lampard's chelsea side hasn't been performing consistently well all season i know they're in fourth place but honestly it's because the teams below them are kind of been sporadic too but i personally feel like lampard shouldn't get a lot of stick but i feel like you know i feel like we're kind of giving him this golden ticket like he's the golden boy of all the managers which i i personally don't agree with you do have to give him some credit though because he is after all overperforming a little bit compared to what we expected of him going into this season. But I will say one area where we could potentially find some criticism for Lampard is that he had this transfer ban for January lifted, and he chose not to do anything. He didn't sell any players. He didn't bring any players in. He's trusting in his current squad now. So that means it's on him to get results with the current squad because for the first half of the season, all you can do is get the best out of what he had. And now in the second half of the season, he's trusting in the same formula with the current players he has now. And now that's when we can say, okay, that's when Lampard kind of really made a decision here on how he can best get results with this team. So now I think this is where we can start to give him a little bit of stick. But at the same time, you still have to put it in the big picture overall perspective that it is still his first season. He's inheriting a team that has a lot of youngsters in Tammy Abraham, Mason Mount, and just Christian Pulisic as well. So you kind of have to give him some credit there. And also he is still in most of the competitions from Champions League and also top four battle in the Premier League. So I think you have to give some credit there. But, you know, you do have to criticize him when it's due so that he can also learn as a manager himself. But I still think that he's doing pretty well at this stage of the season. If there's a manager to really 
you know, criticize or put some stick on. It's I don't feel like it's Lampard still, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of iffy. I think, um, you know, I do think that he is doing a pretty good job and he's doing, you know, pretty like a, a really good job with what he's been given with. But I think, you know, I think the squad he inherited wasn't totally toxic or bad. I think there was still a lot of quality in that squad. I mean, they've won Premier League titles in the past with pretty much same sort of group of players. So I think the squad is good. Um, I don't know. I just think that sometimes he maybe, you know, when there is a bad loss, I don't think enough blame is put on him or his shoulders. I think sometimes he's given a free pass, but that's just my opinion on that. Um, two kind of switching over to two teams that are facing a lot of criticism right now and pretty much the entire season is Watford and West Ham. Obviously, Nigel Pearson's Watford and David Moyes' West Ham, they had a little bit of that new manager bounce. We thought that could probably save them. But I want to point this out. These two teams, historically, for the past, I would say, five seasons, have gone through the same sort of culture of where you bring in a guy, you may, you sack him when you're not getting the right results, you bring in the type of players he wants, um, and then you sack him, and then it's just a repeating process of bringing back managers and finally, I think that type of philosophy is catching up to both of these clubs. And unfortunately, there are they are in a relegation battle, and I really don't see how both of these clubs are going to get out. It's I had a higher chance of at least one of them getting out, but I don't, I don't see both of them um, surviving the relegation battle this season. For me, I feel like West Ham do have a better chance than say Watford just due to quality alone of the squad. But based on this crucial match they had this past weekend against West Ham versus Brighton, it was basically a comedy of errors where Fabianski gave away an own goal, basically where he punched it into the back of Ogbana. Issa, Issa Diop did a terrible back hit or back pass to Fabianski with a header that basically just went a foot in front of him. And then, um, like uh, Pascal Gross just stole it and got a free goal from that. So West Ham are basically shooting themselves in the foot while Watford, I feel like they don't have a, as much quality compared to say West Ham to really get out of a hole. And for them, if they have to kind of have their luck in games to really come back, they do have Troy Deeney back and he's a player I do like to highlight in that he can really boost the team and, get the players back into the game but without him and if he's not really performing that well that day either I feel like that's when West or mm-hmm. that's when Watford kind of slip up and that's what we saw also this weekend too with yep. Watford going 2-0 up first and then Everton coming back 3-2 to beat him and mm-hmm. Everton scored two goals at the end it's of the not first like half Everton within... are world beaters. yeah and Everton themselves this season have been doing pretty poorly this season as well and Yari Mina was the one who scored both the goals at the end of the first half. Yeah, I mean, man, from two corner it, kicks. It was a weekend for the center backs in the Premier League. What a weekend for them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But I, I want to point this out with West Ham. I feel like this is every season. They have all these big players, but they constantly underperform to their potential. Why is that? How can they always underperform every season? Like, what type of culture and what type of regime is going on in West Ham where every player that goes there just goes... That dip, they basically dip five, uh, five levels below their natural, you know, level. I think it's a bit of how Everton is right now too, in terms of what West Ham is experiencing, where they didn't really have that world class of management to bring the potential out of these players and also keep the good players in good form consistently. So you see players go to West Ham like Felipe Anderson, and you see Robert Snodgrass currently is their best player which is something you shouldn't really be saying because they also yeah. have like Sebastian Hollier, mm-hmm. Mikhail Antonio, Declan Rice, yeah, Lanzini. Diop. Diop. They have all these players. And I feel like it's an Everton situation where the these players' potentials just aren't really being brought out the best. Mm-mm. And, you know, David Moyes. <laughs> you don't really expect David Moyes to be the star man to bring out the best in these players. They, he's enough to potentially keep them in the Premier League, but... Man, for West Ham, they just need a, a manager. Pellegrini, I thought, would have been that manager to really mm. bring the best out of these players because he did bring Manchester City a title. But yep. even then... There's too much for him. Mm-hmm. 
But I mean, I West Ham is one of those toxic clubs, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> ever since they moved, um, moved to the new ground, it's just been so downhill for them. I think they need to go back to how they bought Payet. They need to buy they just need more to buy of an Payet. under... <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, Payet literally made that team click and made them so good. But I feel like they need to start buying players, sort of what Everton need to do. Stop going after the could have been or, you know, the could be superstars. You know, go after the guys that, you know, are going to always work hard, that, you know, rely on their talent, but also they have a good work ethic and, you know, sort of low key. So that way you can kind of develop them under the radar and there's not that much pressure and expectation for you to be really good. Because we thought going into this season, that they have Manuel Pellegrini, they have a Haller, they have Lanzini, they have, you know, Jack Wilshire, Declan Rice. They have so many of these good, you know, star, you know, quote unquote star names that, oh my gosh, they have to at least challenge for the top half of the table. But when they do, it's so disappointing. I think they need to go back to kind of going for more low key signings and developing them and, you know, get focusing on players that work hard and are constantly working hard. I think that's could I think that type of philosophy will kind of get West Ham, you know, out of the relegation battle year in and year out and maybe focusing, helping them focus on finishing in the top half. But I do agree with you that Watford are in a bit of a tough situation just because they don't have the quality of players necessary to really get themselves out of this uh out of this bad run of form. But quickly going into the Liverpool Southampton game, I wanted to point this out for Mino getting a hat trick of assists. That's quite incredible. I mean, that's pretty. I mean, I feel like he's. I feel like he's done that a couple of times this season, right? Or he's gotten close to a hat trick of assists. I would say more recently, he's gotten a lot better at getting those assists. Not even just one or two. Like, yeah, not even just one, but like a couple. Mm-hmm. But that's more recent. Yeah. Say, you know, this game during the first half, Southampton did have their chances. It wasn't. I do. I, I, do, I do remember that. Yeah, Southampton <laughs> were putting themselves on the gas pedal. Pushing on the gas pedal. It was nil-nil at the end of the first half. So this game, the scoreline doesn't really say the whole story. At the very end of the game, you know, 4-0, it, it seemed like a walk the in the champions. park. Yeah, champions. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a clear. It looks like Liverpool are securing the title by March at this rate, mm-hmm. which is insane. So March 7th, it seems to be the projection. In a 38-game season, they're, they're, they're going to have around nine games to spare. That's crazy. That's literally 18 points up for grab mm-hmm. if that happens. But that that is wild. And right now, they have the second longest unbeaten streak in the Premier League behind Arsenal, who have 49 games unbeaten, and Liverpool now are at 42. So they do have a little bit of ways left to go to, you know, tie or potentially surpass that record but for them to continue on getting win after win and also basically putting out almost the same core starting 11 every game they did put Fabinho back in the starting lineup and also Mane is still out with a slight minor hamstring injury so Oxley Chamberlain took his spot in the left wing and he did pretty well he got a goal he got the Mm -hmm. opening goal in the the beginning of the second half just like a rip from the top of the box which is something oh, yeah. that you always like to see from Oxlad. But this game, basically, Firmino was just tearing apart Southampton's defense in the second half. It seemed like he was unlocking everything. And Jordan Henderson, I do want to point out, has been turning up as captain from the midfield. He's been assisting and scoring goals, which is something you mm-hmm. don't usually hear from Jordan yeah. Henderson. He usually plays a lot deeper and also is the man who dictates tempo mm-hmm. and pace and does set players up for breaks or, you know, sets other players up like Trent Alexander-Arnold to, mm-hmm. to be the player to get the assist. But yep. Jordan Henderson, this game has been the man on the end of these crosses or the man who has put in the crosses, which mm-hmm. is which is big because now it's thinking, all right, Henderson is stepping up. He wants this, this final trophy in his cabinet, that one he doesn't have, the one that Liverpool has been waiting for for 30 years. And... Is a good thing to see. Everyone in this game in particular just stepped up. But I will have to say, if you're watching this game, you saw Takumi Minamino miss a sitter, basically. <laughs> that was rough <laughs> to watch. I was like, oh, my. It kind of goes to show the gap in quality between the Liverpool starting 11 and a player who is good gets slotted into this amazing team because 
you know, a, a ball was just rolled straight in front of him, and then he just skied it. Mm. And I was like, uh, he's a slight. I call that uh, Andreas Pereira miss right there. Andreas Pereira. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, you know Liverpool are incredible, but. I, I wanted to say that I accidentally made a mistake. I know you said they have nine matches. They could have nine matches left. Um, mm-hmm. I, I said 18 points. I meant to say 27. I can do <laughs> math. Don't worry. <laughs> Quick maths. But, all right, Jordan Henderson is a guy I want to point out because, you know, I've spoke to you before even started a podcast, Jordan Henderson, and I would get kind of mixed reactions from you. You weren't, it was not like, oh my gosh, this guy is you know, the best player on the team. It was more like, eh, you can have his days. However, what I've been seeing now recently with Henderson is just a complete turnaround where he is that solidified club captain, the guy that's going to give his all every game and is scoring and assisting. You know, what was your opinion of Jordan Henderson, I guess, pre-Klopp before Klopp came? Jordan Henderson was trying very hard to be like a... Steven Gerrard 2.0, I feel like in terms of his playing style, he was a player that was trying to develop the long pass to be as accurate and precise as Steven Gerrard's was. And also, every once in a while, Jordan Henderson would rip a long shot. But the leadership qualities, I feel like, was not the same as Gerrard in that Jordan Henderson did have the knack to be injury prone every once in a while. So at times the vice captain, James Milner, would be the man leading the squad. And I thought that as a captain, you always have to be the man that plays the most because you're the player that will dictate a comeback, the player that will inspire a team to really give it their all to finish out a game, get the win. And more recently, Jordan Henderson has been healthy and he's been subbed out usually in around the 70th or 80th minute to make sure he consistently plays every single game, which is fine for me because he's playing the majority of the minutes. And also, behind the scenes, captains do more than just, you know, dictate play and make plays themselves on the field. They're also the ones in the locker rooms cheering on, like cheering up the players, making sure everyone's in good morale, mm-hmm. <laughs> clearing out tickets, complimenting <laughs> apparently, if uh, <laughs> our players are getting them and then like, spreading out to other families, things like that. So a lot of behind-the-scenes things that Jordan Henderson's really been doing for several years now. So I think that's also more second nature to him, the captaincy, where when he first got it, it was like, oh, boy, this is big shoes to fill because it was literally Steven Gerrard for over Mm -hmm. a decade. I mean, yeah, that was the guy. I remember every time I heard Jordan Henderson, his name, it'd always be like, oh, is he Steven Gerrard? He's playing in the same position. He's got to be Steven Gerrard, you know? Mm -hmm. However, what... I, I guess, like, when Klopp came, what were some aspects of his game that were struggling, and where do you think he is now thriving, in a sense, since Klopp has come? Like, where have you seen the biggest development? I think in Jordan Henderson, he was never, and still kind of isn't, the one of the top players on the squad. He's not the worst, but he's not a world-class player in terms of ability. I think his leadership skills are what really keeps him on the field. Mm-hmm. But when he was first captain, we kind of expected him, since he was the replacement for Gerard, to be that new step up to make those Gerard S kind of plays. And I think those expectations were a little much for him. And he's not that kind of player. He's not the kind of player who would do a like 50-yard forward pass. He's much more of the side-to-side, passing it from one side of the field, like the left side to the right side, or vice mm-hmm. versa. He's... A, quote-unquote side-to-side passer (laughs) he doesn't really make that many positive passes like towards the opponent opposition goal Mm -hmm. and he got a lot of criticism for that because because of that a lot of chances for like fast breaks things like that were lost because he just wouldn't have the vision or have the confidence to really play that pass or really have that instinct to play that pass he's more instinctively a very conservative passer and I think Klopp plays more into that. And that's why we see Trent Alexander-Arnold and Robertson getting more of the assists because literally Henderson as side-to-side passer is just feeding those two players who are making those bombing runs for him and then just crossing in from the corner flags or just from the top of – or like the corners of the goal box. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why where Klopp kind of saw that, you know, Jordan Henderson is not Steven Gerrard. Jordan Henderson is his own kind of player, his 
very conservative kind of player who has leadership abilities to really that no one really kind of believed in him. Even me at times, I was like, man, why is it Jordan Henderson? <laughs> He's do you do you feel like you know you you keep mentioning Steven Gerrard? Do you feel like Liverpool fan? When do you feel like Liverpool fans finally just accepted that this guy isn't going to be the Gerrard replacement, and we just kind of have to accept him for who he is and his limitations in the game, but also he does bring some other things to the game that maybe some of our other players couldn't. When do you think that shift happened with the Liverpool fans? Mm. It's a little tricky because when Gerard was finishing his last few, couple seasons at Liverpool, you could tell that Jordan Henderson was going to be the next one in line to be the captain. Because like every once in a while when Gerard is not in that starting 11, it would be Jordan Henderson to get that captaincy. And also he would be the player who would try to talk to the refs, you know, do all those little side side gigs to make sure you, it kind of gives the appearance that he is a leader. So he did all the right things. And I think the expectation was that, you know, he would be a big leader. It's just the, the adjustment period was a lot longer than expected. And I think by roughly the end of the Brandon Rogers era and near the beginning of the Klopp era, that's when we started to think, or at least I started to think is Jordan Henderson going to be the captain for as long as he's at Liverpool. Because, you know, once you get a new manager, sometimes that manager gives the captaincy to someone else or just doesn't play the captain. And then the captain is just forced to relinquish the captaincy because he just doesn't play. But once Jordan Henderson kept playing under Klopp as well, I was thinking, all right, it looks like Jordan Henderson will be that staple. And there's just something about him that is just keeping him in the starting 11. Kind of like how Xhaka just keeps finding his way into that Arsenal starting 11 too. Oh, yeah. But Jordan Henderson, in my opinion, is way better than Xhaka. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot more you, level-headed. So is it, do you feel like it's a far stretch for an outsider like me that's not a Liverpool fan to say that he could potentially finish as Liverpool's player of the year after this season? Hmm. That is, that is a tricky one because he... He's not the key player, in my opinion, every game that has made the significant impact. Right. I'll ask you this. <laughs> Can you, what if you took him out and replaced him with some other star midfielder in the world? Let's say like a Tony Cruz. You replaced him with Tony Cruz. Are you Liverpool just as good? Hmm. It, in this scenario that you just presented, that would change because Tony Cruz and. Jordan Henderson are not the same kind of player, in my opinion, where mm-hmm. Jordan Henderson is a lot more of the box-to-box midfielder. He he does a lot of dirty work where Tony Cruz is a very much more creative player. Tony Cruz also has no pace. <laughs> so <laughs> he does box-to-box. By the time he makes it to the box that the ball's in, he's like, oh, the ball's already on the other side of the field. It's like, oh, I can jog all the back. <laughs> but, and also Tony Cruz has the ability to really rip a long shot using either foot. And that's something that's very unique to him, in my opinion. He's able to just literally pass the ball into the net from anywhere, it felt like. And Jordan Henderson is a lot more physical. And that's what's different, I feel like. He's a lot more complete of a midfielder than, say, a Tony Cruz would be. So, mm. although, even right now, I'm not giving him too much credit, or Jordan Henderson, he does a lot of dirty work that a lot of other players don't have to do, which frees them up to do their own thing. So, like, say... Jorginho Wijnaldum, he's able to run up the field every once in a while and make a play, potentially get an assist or score a goal, while Jordan Henderson sits back and makes sure that there's no counterattack. And he's also the player that's not afraid to put in a tackle, where when you see, like, say, another center midfielder like Tony Cruz, he's not going to be the type of player that would mm-hmm. really go, no, go ham I, into a tackle. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. I'm not trying to, I guess, compare Henderson to, you know, a Manchester United midfielder, but kind of reminds me of Scott McTominay, you know, a guy that just kind of does the dirty work and, you know, doesn't really possess a great shot. Maybe he's not the most creative of midfielders, but he does the dirty work that not a lot of players are willing to do. And mm-hmm. that's what keeps him consistently in the starting 11. Cause I feel like every club needs a guy that will do the dirty work no matter what. And for Liverpool, that's Henderson. But obviously, he's thriving, Liverpool's thriving, and that's why they're on top of the league right now. And I know Tyler's happy because of that. But Sleep happy every night. <laughs> sleep happy, <laughs> knowing that they're pretty much going to win every game of the Premier League, basically. Yes. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but going into the Burnley Arsenal game, game finished nil nil. Uh, actually, a weird weekend where there was quite a few nil nils um, this game week for the Premier League. But this one, I felt like was a fair result because I feel like both clubs had pretty good chances to score, but didn't really take their opportunities. Aubameyang surprisingly scuffed so many chances, which is very unusual for a high-quality striker like Aubameyang, because usually when he's one-on-one through goal, you expect him to just fire the ball in the back of the net. But I don't want to point too much on him. I want to point some on his strike partner, Alexandre Lacazette. Only has five goals in the league this season. Obviously has finished with double-digit scoring um, tallies when he's been at Arsenal in all competitions. This season in particular in the Premier League has been struggling a lot. You know, obviously it's down to Unai Emery having a really poor run of form. And then Mikel Arteta coming in, implementing a new style could be affecting Lacazette's play. However, Arsenal paid such a big price tag on Lacazette and he really has not been, in my eyes, been that productive in scoring goals and creating assists. I feel like there, I know in seasons he's finished with double, you know, double digit goal scoring uh, tallies, but I I don't know. I just need to see more of him. You know, it's sort of like a Kepa situation. You bring in a guy for big money, but you want to see more. You want to you want to see him produce more from, rather than what he's producing. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you, Jason, that Alexander Lacazette has not been able to produce goals as when he played at Lyon and Ligue 1. Ligue 1, as you can see, is just a huge step down <laughs> <laughs> from the Premier League. Because right now, I feel like every time Lacazette scores is because it was a tap-in or it was finished from a cross or it was scrappy just, goal. It was like a scrappy goal. It's nothing where he just ran past yeah. three players and just like ripped it. He was a curler, upper 90 curler, like not beating his opponent 1v1, doing something incredible like that. I, I totally agree. So he really needs someone to assist him. He really needs someone to make the play for him and then he finishes it, which is... Not great from a player worth that much money or the amount of money that Arsenal paid into him. And also, that's also why I feel like Lacazette is, hasn't been scoring that much this season. And, you know, Gabriel Martin, Martinelli is the man getting more of the headlines as 18-year-old, <laughs> which is crazy because he's making the plays. He's making those bombing runs. He's, and that's why he's he, getting those chances. He's outperforming Nicola Pepe, Pepe that they paid such a big money for as well in the summer. And he also came from the French League. Ligue 1. And, you know, uh, Martinelli, that's a good problem to have in that you have a really good up-and-coming player who's like a rising star. And although in this game in particular, he didn't finish the couple opportunities he did have, at least he got him. Where mm-hmm. when you saw that, like I said, it's like, man, when is he going to do something? <laughs> yeah. I feel like mostly whenever I watch him, all he does is he'll hold up the ball, you know, shield the ball, and then try to do like one of those silky turns, ends up losing the ball because of that. And I personally feel like he doesn't have the highest of work rates. I feel like sometimes he can be kind of lazy in terms of just kind of, you know, walking around, not really minding his own business. I feel like Aubameyang just works so much more harder for the team. And he plays out in the wing. He doesn't even play as a striker. And that must be infuriating for Aubameyang because Aubameyang, if you had to compare apples to oranges, like Aubameyang is a way better striker than Lacazette, but he's making a sacrifice to help out, you know, his fellow teammate. But Lacazette doesn't really work that hard. I feel like off the ball, and whenever he does get the ball, he's kind of lazy. Um, I don't. I feel like with Arteta, he's gonna have to make a big decision. You know, what do you do here? Do you let Lacazette go in the summer and kind of just trust the? development of Martinelli and putting Aubameyang as your front centerpiece and then getting some wingers to help, you know, distribute and create goals for him? Or do you give Lacazette more of a chance next season? But right now, I personally feel like he hasn't warranted and done enough for me as an Arsenal fan, or not an Arsenal fan, but if I were an Arsenal fan to keep him. Uh, A closet Arsenal fan. (laughs) No, God, no. No, 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 no. But Got my words mixed up there. Yeah. But at the same time, Lacazette is a more developed player than, say, Martinelli is. So over time, I feel like Martinelli in the Premier League, if you play him week in and week out as an 18-year-old, he will start to decline. And I feel like it's a Daniel James situation where you kind of have to monitor him and you know kind of rotate him out the starting 11 and put Pepe in. 
and things like that. But I will also want to say that in this game, Burnley, it looks like they had Arsenal figured out. Everything Arsenal tried, it looked like Burnley knew what they're going to do. It just made it look like Burnley made Arsenal's tactics very predictive, very simple. And I have to give kudos to Burnley for that one because Burnley have been very roller coaster in terms of their form, where like sometimes mm-hmm. they're really good, sometimes really poor. This game, they're very good, and they really stopped Arsenal from getting much attacks, or at least any clear opportunities, because it just looked like they're always a step ahead of Arsenal, which is kind of weird to think about because I feel like under Mikel Arteta, he's developed such a good organizational formation and tactics around Arsenal that for Burnley to figure it out already in February, yeah. <laughs> it's a little worrying, but yeah. you know, that's what kind I, of Burnley does. Yeah. And also, you know, Mikel Arteta has been what month and a half in the job. I feel like mm-hmm. this was probably expected, you know, people, it's going to take him time to really get his full philosophy. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is just like maybe a shorthanded version of what he's trying to do. Cause he may not have the exact players that he needs to kind of fulfill this, uh, play style he wants Mesut Ozil is a guy I want to bring up because man is he still he has to still be the highest paid player in Arsenal right now with the wages right Mm -hmm. I feel like he has to and he doesn't really produce that much assist assist wise and scoring wise still the man is still lacking in in those two categories yet you're paying him so much it's sort of the Alexis Sanchez situation for Manchester United and it's a little disheartening. If I were some of the Arsenal players, if I was Nicola Pepe, if I was some other players and I saw Mesut Ozil's getting paid this high and mighty fee and he's not even producing the goals or the assists, I mean, like, why why is he still on the team, you know? Um, again, I keep saying this. I think Mesut Ozil needs to go this summer. I feel like his time as an Arsenal player has gone up. I know he's kind of... His form has increased a little bit, improved a little bit with Mikel Arteta, but... A guy getting paid that much still isn't producing the amount of goals and assists that you would want from a number 10 attacking playmaker. And it's kind of sad because Ozil is kind of declining in sort of the same way Juan Mata did. Obviously, on their day, Mesut Ozil was a much better player than Juan Mata. But as we see with Manchester United, Juan Mata still cannot really score goals anymore or create a lot of chances. And Mesut Ozil is kind of the same way where it seems like the game is kind of passing him at the moment. Mm-hmm. It was really sad for me because Mesut mm-hmm. Ozil. He was, was a, he was one of my favorite players. He was so same. good. When I started watching soccer in 2010, the World Cup in South Africa, he's one of the mm. players. I was like, dang, this guy's this guy's a beast. Oh now, yeah, now he's like an old man. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think Mesut Ozil's time has come as well. But at the same time, Arsenal will need a replacement for Mesut Ozil in terms mm-hmm. of a creative midfielder. And to replace Ozil, you know, he's not the same Ozil as before, but I always like to say, unless they have a replacement ready to go, it's it's a bit of a risk because who, mm-hmm. who are they really going to put there? Yeah, Maybe Martinelli, but Martinelli is not the same kind of player. Martinelli is more of a attacker and, you know, maybe they have Ceballos, but <laughs> he doesn't really start that yeah. much anymore either. So, mm-hmm. hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. It's tricky, but I think we're both on the consensus that, you know, Ozil's time, unfortunately, has kind of come up in the, at least playing for Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Now going over to Manchester United in the Wolves game, a game that also finished nil-nil. Big oh. news in that one <laughs> was Bruno Fernandes, their star midfielder that they bought from Sporting CP, made his debut in the attacking midfield position, started off the game in that role being much more advanced. However, Later in the game, he kind of had to drop back, basically playing in a midfield of two with Fred because Andres Pereira, my favorite player, kept losing the ball. <laughs> my gosh, that guy is... I, for, all right, I don't like to just call out players and hate on them because they are, you know, they, I, they, they work hard, you know. I mean, a lot of people can say, oh, they're lazy, but they work hard in training and all that. But I'm sorry, man. This guy just can't cut it right now he is just he loses the ball all the time he's not very good attacking wise he can't really score um his he can be so sporadic with his crosses and you know the type of balls he plays but i've been on Andres Pereira too much but he kept losing the ball jesse lingard 
um, was awful once again. But the one bright spot was Bruno Fernandez. We saw a couple instances in the game where he basically ripped it, like Tyler said, that type of long shot mentality where he's not afraid to let go, sort of like the Paul Pogba mentality. You know, he has the skill to shoot and he's going to shoot when he sees an opening. Um, it was really bright for him. And I really liked the play he was kind of developing with Juan Mata, Marcial, Dan James, where he, you know, his his head was constantly moving. You know, he was never just standing still waiting for the ball to come to him. You know, he was always paying attention. He was aware of where everyone was around him and he was doing making some quick passes. And unfortunately, the goal just didn't come. But it was a good kind of debut for Bruno Fernandez. Didn't get a chance to really acclimate the play style and all, but I think he did well there. However, big news was on deadline day, United signed Odie Nagalo. If you didn't know, he was a striker that played for Watford in the 2015-16 season. Scored a good, decent amount of goals. Mm-hmm. However, ha- has been playing in China recently. Has not had the best form. However, if you've seen any of the interviews, the guy's actually grown up. And he actually, I'm not joking, legitimately has been a legit Manchester United fan since day one. And there was a picture of him that he posted on Twitter where he visited United Old Trafford as a fan in 2013. And everything he's been talking about is like he just wants to give his all for the time he has. And he just wants to work really hard and do whatever he can to get on the field. And a lot of United fans are liking that mentality because we haven't had a lot of players recently in the past who have that same mindset of I'm going to do whatever I can to perform well for this club. So Low expectation signing. I'm not expecting him to score 20, 15 goals. Honestly, if he scores maybe four four or five goals until now, until the end of the season, I'll be happy. If he just tries hard and gives us another option up there, I think it's going to be a successful signing for Manchester United. A very low-risk signing. Yeah, and he also gives a different dynamic to that starting 11. He's bigger. Hold up the ball. Mm -hmm. And he has Premier League experience. However, he has been in China for (laughs) past few years. Yeah. Might have coronavirus, <laughs> but you know, coming from the Chinese league to the Premier League, it's a little hard to say how he's going to perform because it's a whole different world mm-hmm. where we literally just roasted league uh, <laughs> for being a step down. Yeah. Chinese league yeah. is in a whole Steps other down. tier of step down. <laughs> but you know, we've seen instances of players coming out of the Chinese league back into. You know, notable leagues like Paulinho, for example. Oh, yeah. But, you know, not everyone's Paulinho. So mm-hmm. we're going to have to see how Igalo does. But at the same time, the standard, as Yash has been pointing out, for a striker has been so low <laughs> at Manchester United. is like, can you go below that bar? Yeah. All he needs to do is score. It seems very easy. Uh, but, you know, as a striker who's on a team that's a little struggling right now, that's a big ask. And also, there's a lot of pressure for him, despite just being a short-term loan. But Manchester United need results, and this is a big thing. But I do also want to go back very briefly to Bruno Fernandes and that with Bruno Fernandes, surprisingly, in my opinion, making that start and playing the whole 90 minutes after joining the team two days before that game, yeah. which is insane to me, he did pretty well. He yeah. he did get fed a lot. I feel like most plays were just trying to force Bruno Fernandes into the play, and that's what got him those you know long shot opportunities and those opportunities to make a cross or make a play so because he was fed so much that's also why he did pretty it looks like he did well but mm-hmm. also it just made Manchester United look different in terms of their playing style where it's like yeah, it oh just... this guy could be so dynamic he can just rip a shot literally from anywhere mm-hmm. and we saw that we saw him like just take a shot from like oh, yeah. 30 yards I was like oh there we go Oh yeah, you know, it wasn't it's, a great job, but it was a shot. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of like when Paul Pogba is in the lineup. You know, he offers so much, so much creativity and so much. You know that uh, that that type of play where you just don't know what he's gonna do. It's that good good idea of you don't know what he's gonna do because he can either play a very intelligent pass to someone, play a through ball in, take a long shot. You know, he knows what to do with the ball, and I think that's very good for Manchester United because they desperately need that in the midfield and been lacking that all season i wanted to point out um anthony marcial real quickly i know he's been struggling as playing a striker i think this season has kind of shown that you know selling lukaku without bringing in a proper replacement was a mistake from the manchester united board i know they were probably relying on marcus rashford and marcial carrying that reign to credit to rashford he has done that in a sense but it's been mostly through the left wing not as the solo striker and with Martial playing as a solo striker, he struggles as well. I think both of those guys 
are way better when they're put out on the wing and where they can kind of cut in on their favorite foot and just kind of beat people on the wings. I think that's when they're most effective. And United really need to prioritize getting a striker in for this um, next transfer window. But they are prioritizing reportedly to putting their efforts into getting Jack Grealish. I think that would be a huge signing if it does happen, but that's obviously in the summer. I mean, he could be on the cheap if Aston Villa get relegated. Yeah, (laughs) it'll be a huge signing if that happens. It would be, but at the same time, mm, they need a striker. They need a... They need other players way more. <laughs> they need notably. They other just players. need. They. I. I. I do agree that there are positions where there needs to be priority, but I do feel like the state United are in. They kind of just need to bring more influx, just more talent yeah, into the more side. You know, quality. Yeah, exactly. That's the word I'm looking for. Quality. Mm-hmm. Dan James. Um, he's a guy that I really like. However, you know, they bought him for 15 million pounds from Swansea. His. This is actually his second season playing professional. You know, top division. Uh, football has been struggling a lot recently his cross has been inconsistent really struggles to beat people on the wings doesn't really have a shot outside of a finesse shot however there is a lot of hope for him because a lot of those things you can kind of develop you know in training it's not like he lacks the work ethic or the drive to really become good you know developing a shot beating people you know 1v1 i think that's all those things you can really develop and personally I feel like where you Manchester United want to go in the future, I don't know if Dan James is going to develop that much where he can become a star player and become, you know, the number one, you know, the number one person on the team sheet. However, I don't, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up becoming, you know, if United bring in more quality players, if he becomes that super sub, you know, that guy you can con- consistently rotate in and out and become a decent guy to co- bring off on the bench. Mm-hmm. And that's not a terrible thing either because, you know, United brought him in for 15 million pounds and mm-hmm. there's not too much expectations on Daniel James. So for him to be like a Chicharito-esque kind of super sub or like Di Valcarigi, that's, yeah. not, that's not too bad. It's just a different kind of player. But, you know, it's up to the ambitions of Daniel James too. It's like, do you want to start every game or do you mind you know, waiting on the wings every once in a while? And having someone else start in front of you, like say Marcus Rashford starting on the left wing instead of him, when they eventually do, when Manchester United eventually do have a striker, maybe Igualo is that guy. <laughs> maybe Igualo. Igualo. But for now, we're gonna have to see how. Yeah, they also have a young Mason Greenwood waiting in the wings. But I yeah. kind of agree with Oligona Solskjaer. His strategy of not just throwing, like chucking Mason Greenwood out in the starting lineup consistently because he's still very young at 18, I believe. And the last thing I would want them to do is kind of just chuck him out there and ruin his confidence for the rest of the season if he's not performing that well. I think Solskjaer is doing the right plan of, you know, slowly inserting him as, you know, as a bench player and then starting him and then maybe starting him on the occasional game here and there. I think it would be too much to just throw him in as an 18 year old to just start playing games week in and week out mm-hmm. i agree he's not like a martinelli kind of situation where you really have to force it you know united they are kind of in the situation but at the same time it's not a, a force where it's like all right you know what greenwood is producing as much as say a martinelli is so like that's why i don't think they're playing him as much but also at the same time it's like we don't or you know don't have to play him every single time and that's mm-hmm. And as an 18-year-old, I don't think you should be playing that much unless you're, say, like a Lionel Messi where you're literally changing the game every single time. <laughs> um, yeah, it, they, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think um, they're doing the right thing there. But, you know, uh, I'll mention Wolves real quickly. I think they did a good job. They came in with a game plan of basically playing on the counterattack. And they mm-hmm. had a, maybe, I would say, two or three chances where you felt like they legit, legitimately could have scored. Adama Traore had a shot. Um, Raul Jimenez probably had the best chance for Wolves where he basically was on the corner of the goal and basically tried to do a Sergio Aguero-esque goal where he just tries to hit it in the roof of the net and luckily De Gea was there to stop it but Wolves again are playing really well and I'm super impressed what they're doing this season but I mean, game ended up but yeah you do also have to give some credit to your United defense too they stopped a in for Adama Traore and Raul Jimenez mm-hmm. you know and and in, in doing so, I wish I had 
the 90 minutes of my life back on sa- on Sunday. Yeah. I forgot Diego Dallo almost scored the free the game winner. He was in like, I'm telling you, inches away from that header being on target and scoring. I know, but man, he didn't. <laughs> and then they ended up with two nil-nil games back to back on a Sunday. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, I want to see a goal." <laughs> yeah. oh, it, was it, was a rough, it was a little brutal. And it was a little anticlimactic, but you know, kudos to the defense for turning up for all four of those teams in question. But yeah, that man, is uh, as the neutral. <laughs> I want yeah, my life a, back. <laughs> it was a sore sight to see. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with that. But going under the uh, preview section, I just wanted to mention Premier League have introduced a, a new split break type of thing for this game week. So if you if you notice, this is a very long game week because it stretches into this coming weekend and next weekend. Basically, they cut. Um, Basically, four teams play or eight teams will play this weekend. And then those eight teams will get a break for next weekend. And those teams that didn't play this weekend will play um, that next weekend. So it kind of gives teams a more of a scattered break and helps alleviate some of the problems that a lot of managers were voicing when it comes to not having enough rest and not being able to prepare for the Champions League and the European knockout stages. So it just basically makes the fixture list not as congested, which is always really good um, Mm -hmm. when it comes to helping players get rest and avoiding injuries. So uh, I'm a big fan of this, even though it's going to be a little awkward at first, just waiting a whole another weekend for to finish out the game week. But I think it's what what's needed to be done. But going into the games here, I know there's four games, but we're going to pick out the best three from this weekend. Um, We have Brighton Watford battle. Uh, Let's see if Watford can actually get out of this relegation battle. However, is this one's going to be tough? I actually think I'll probably just end up finishing nil nil or no one 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 one. Ooh, I also agree. I think it will be a t- a draw, but I think it will be a two two. Oh, this game, he's going for two two again. Two two because the defense is bad, not that great. <laughs> yeah, and they do have based on last week's performances the ability to find the goals. So I think it will be a bit of a shootout this this weekend between the two and also these two teams know that they're both in the relegation battle so this is a key matchup and you know usually i side with a team that i feel like is in slightly better form or has more motivation but both teams based on the recent games don't look like they have the edge over the other so i think it'll be a draw 2-2 and then sheffield united hosting bournemouth i'm gonna go with uh, a bit of a shock result right here. I'm going to go for Bournemouth escaping Sheffield United with a 2-1 win. I think Eddie Howe has got his side ticking the right way. Obviously, Sheffield are in really good form as well. However, I'm just feeling an upset. I think an upset can happen this weekend, and I'm feeling Bournemouth can pull off something spectacular here. Bournemouth are also in that relegation battle where they do need to pick up some form, and they have been getting some results recently or some points recently in the recent games but Sheffield United just seems like they have a system really locked down for the season where they're breaking down all teams where no one can get past them and they're getting the clean sheets they're literally Huddersfield from a couple seasons ago during the first season where they're just getting those clean sheets out of the out of their back pockets like where'd that come from and I wouldn't be surprised if Sheffield get the 1-0 against Bournemouth and I'm going to stick with that, actually. Oh, he's going safe. I'm going I also have Dean, right Henderson. I have Dean Henderson on my fantasy team. <laughs> <laughs> so you need him to have a good game. I need him to have a clean sheet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, then we have the last game, Man City versus West Ham. Oh, City are wow. going to dominate West Ham. This is a revenge game. Pep is going to be mad. Those players are going to be mad. Dude, I honestly think this will get, this game will finish 5-0. Manchester 5-0. City. Oh, yeah. I'm that confident Manchester City rolling past West Ham. Low key, we've we have said some some games this season. Pep Guardiola will be mad this game. He will turn up and you know destroy the other team. But this season so far, it's been very hit or miss. But West Ham are struggling pretty pretty bad, and also they've been shooting themselves in the foot with making their own errors. And Manchester City of all teams are ones to capitalize on mistakes, and if West Ham are going to go into this game making a lot of mistakes, especially as the away team, feeling a little uneasy. I think Manchester City will win as well. And I think, did you say 5-0? I'm going to say 
I'm I'm gonna say four nil. Just uh, prices right you, <laughs> but I don't know if it's five nil, six nil. It's just Manchester City is gonna win this game. It's just by how many goals. Oh yeah, and you know why? Because oh Kevin De Bruyne, KDB baby, KDB best midfield, best midfielder <laughs> in the in the uh, in Europe right now. I love I love watching him. He's, I think he's he's so fun to watch. He's crazy. He's it's, literally two footed and able to just find a. And path. he glides. He glides past people. You know when he's like on the ball in a mission to shoot. He's honestly so scary because outside the box, when it's twenty yards out, you can honestly feel like he's gonna shoot a rocket with any foot. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just so confident. But uh, we're both predicting big Manchester City wins this coming weekend. Obviously, it's a long, uh, long game week, but that's due to the split winter break that the Premier League is introducing. But that kind of does it for us for episode 62. Uh, please make sure to rate, comment, subscribe. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. It's been a fun episode. Uh, we're looking forward to the this weekend of Premier League games. But thank you guys so much for listening. That does it for us. Peace. Peace. Peace.